0: You're supposed to wait till after I'm done to, uh, to do that. <clears throat> just thinking about as we're packing up, I, Jennifer and I have found our high school yearbooks, and um, hopefully we'll be able to let our kids read the signatures in this Bible, much younger age than our high school yearbooks. <laughs> so, just please... Thank you. All right. How much time do I have? Okay. Well, when our family moved here five and a half years ago, we straggled into town in pretty rough shape. I had just quit my job as a high school teacher. We were moving here for me to attend graduate school with no clear idea about how we were going to pay for it or pay for our bills. Uh, Dave Ramsey would have been very upset. (laughs) Jennifer's dad had just passed away weeks before we moved here. We had two young boys. Our marriage was strained from the energy we needed to care for them. We were moving into a two-bedroom duplex that did not have central heat and air and because of a miscommunication with our landlord for the first few days did not have electricity or water. It's true. Jennifer and I looked at each other over and over again those first few days and we said, "Hey, we can do this. We can grit out the next 5 years. We can we can fight through anything because there's going to be light at the end of this tunnel." We thought we would grit our teeth and endure and tolerate and stomach the next 5 years, but we were wrong. What we didn't know, uh, but very quickly found out, was that the next five years would be some of the sweetest, most joyful years we've ever known. We were going to lay down our pride and identities that we had held so tightly to for the first five years of our marriage. We were going to spend the next five years of our marriage dying to each other in a way that we didn't even know was possible. We were going to grow in our understanding and affection for Jesus. We were going to see our sin in a new light and have a new power to fight it because of what the Holy Spirit has done. We were going to have another child. We were going to watch our oldest two children learn about their sin and God's response to it. Jennifer and I were going to confess sin to each other in a way that we had never done before. We were going to love people more deeply than we thought was possible in five years. We were going to bring meals to some of you when you were sick or tired or just hungry. We were going to love your children. We were going to pray for your families, and we were going to share your burdens. We thought we were going to endure a dark time for the sake of the light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, what we didn't know is that we were getting ready to walk in light like we had not done before. So, as a researcher, I've been trained in situations like this to ask, what just happened? In my job, I basically get a theory about what I think I'm going to see in a particular place. And then usually I go to that place and find out I was totally wrong. I see something that I did not expect to see. And so I get to spend my days sitting around trying to figure out what in the world happened. And then I get to write about it, hopefully, so that other people will be able to better see the world around them. That's my goal for this morning. This morning, I want to share one of the primary reasons that we were so wrong about the last five years. Hopefully, so that it will encourage you and help you better see and understand the world around you. So the short answer is that we didn't know that you, our local church body, would take so seriously your responsibility to care for our souls. So I'm going to try to do two things this morning in less time than I was told I would have. I want to use the Bible to justify that claim, that you in fact have had the responsibility of caring for our souls, and even after we leave, we'll still have the responsibility for caring for the souls in this room. And then the second thing I hope to do is to give you an example, a visible example of this happening, a case study. I want you to see our family, to see Janine this morning and to say, God is really doing what he promised. So I'm going to begin by looking at a short passage that that many of you have looked at before. In this passage, the author is encouraging a group of Christians to stay with the faith. They were at risk of returning to a safer, easier life. And when I say safer, I mean literally. They were being persecuted heavily. It was a big sacrifice for them to meet together. They were considering returning to a life that didn't threaten them in the same way. So as I read, I want you to listen with two questions in mind. Uh, What is the author in Hebrews instructing these people to do? And how is he instructing them to do it? Please stand with me as we read From Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Please be seated. So I grew up playing team sports. I played things like football, basketball, baseball, where either everyone on the team wins or everyone on the team loses. My first experience with an individual sport, I hadn't even really thought about the difference, uh, wasn't until I was teaching high school and I got roped into coaching wrestling. I knew nothing about wrestling before that. One of the hardest things, among many weird things about wrestling, um, for me to get my head around was the fact that we could have one kid on our wrestling team be a state champion in the exact same season that his teammate got pinned in the very first round of the very first regional tournament. For, For those of you unfamiliar with wrestling, getting pinned is a bad thing. The author here in Hebrews um, instructs his readers to hold to the hope that they profess in Jesus. But listen closely to how he words it. He's giving a team sport kind of pep talk here. Let us hold to the hope we profess. In fact, in his entire call to persevere in faith, starting in verse 19, he's giving this team sport language. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This group collective responsibility, I think, is a hard concept for us. It's a hard one for me. I think even when we think about it, our first inclination is um, something that looks much more like the individual sport model. I mean, even in an individual sport, these people are on a team, right? But it's a very different kind of team relationship. Think about uh, U.S. Olympic sprinters and U.S. Olympic high divers. During the Olympic Games, they are on the same team. They are on the U.S. Olympic team. But if the high diver does a, a cannonball or whatever is the worst thing a high diver can do, it in no way affects the performance of the sprinter. If the sprinter stumbles out of the blocks... It doesn't matter to the high diver. They're not connected to each other. One's performance doesn't affect the other one. They're not responsible for either one in any real way. Think about, though, I think what the author here is talking about is more like um, relationships on the U.S. Olympic basketball team. The center on the team and the guard on the team are their teammates, just like the sprinter and the high diver are teammates, but in a very different way. They depend on each other. Their performance impacts one another. They can't accomplish the goal without each other. Even if the center is the most dominant scorer in Olympic history, he can't pass the ball in bounds to himself. He can't defend the entire other team by himself. They need each other. Either they're going to accomplish the goal together or they're not going to accomplish it at all. It's not a perfect image, but I think this team sport image is very similar to what this author is urging his readers to do. Don't just hold to the faith yourself, but let us as a collective group together hold the hope that we profess. We can't do it alone. So maybe your first thought is that I'm taking the collective part of this instruction a little too far. I mean, Seth, it's just a plural, what, pronoun? Is that right? Yeah, just a plural pronoun. But look closely at the two methods he gives right after this for accomplishing this work. He tells them to do two things. Number one, to faithfully meet together. And number two, to be responsible for each other. You know, I think this makes a lot of sense if we think about the images the Bible gives us for understanding what the church is. Peter tells us that we are living stones being built into a temple. Think about that. To the Jews, the temple was the building where God lived. Paul even tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're told the church is the body of Christ. We are branches on the same vine. We are a flock. We're a body, we're a kingdom, we're a family. In each of these images, the unit, the stone, the vine, the body part, are all together in a union of a larger collective thing, the church. I think too often I tend to think of unity or church unity as basically not arguing with each other, right? Let's promote church unity. Let's not gripe and bicker at each other. That's important, but it's a very, very small piece of church unity. What these images help us see is that church unity is really about being connected together in a way that we're responsible for one another. What we do impacts everyone else in the body. I think if I'm honest, the image uh, that better describes how I think about church very often is something like a bazaar or a shopping mall. Still a lot of people doing really similar things together, right? Coming to the same place. But think about a bazaar or a shopping mall or an outdoor market. Even though you're there with a lot of people doing very similar things, you're not responsible for those people. You care about what you came to get. You don't necessarily care that they find what they came to get. You're not united in a common purpose or a common affection. So, how do we do this? The author first tells his readers to not give up meeting together. That's it. Show up. Regularly, when you don't feel like it, when it's raining, when your kids' nap schedules get really out of whack. When you have child care duty, when you don't feel like anyone here gets you, when you feel alienated, when you feel like things are going great, do not forsake coming together. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about what we should do once we get here together, and I can't get into any of that this morning. What it will tell you is that teaching your children Has pushed mine and Jennifer's understanding of the gospel. You've taught my children, you've loved them, and have been patient with them. We have all heard regularly you sing about God's redemption, and it's encouraged our heart. We have left here encouraged in Jesus when we needed it so bad. And it's not just been on Sunday mornings. We've had a small group in our house. Literally, for three years, the way we arrange our furniture is with many of you in mind. We have a small house, and we've had two dining room tables for for over three years. Hmm. Meeting regularly with you has shown us and reminded us that the gospel is true, especially when we've needed it. So the first method is showing up. And if that sounds too easy, then the second one lets you know that you're right. It is. The second one demands much more from us. The author here tells us to consider how we may spur one another along to love and good deeds. To encourage one another. In John, Jesus tells his disciples to love one another like he loved them. Think about that for a second the way Jesus had loved them and was just about to love them. In Philippians, Paul helps us understand what this means. He tells us that we should look at how Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And that's how we should think about how to love one another. There's a lot to unpack in that scripture. But one of the things that comes out most striking to me is that what Paul describes in Jesus that we should be after is humility. Most of the time, I tend to think that encouraging other people on to love and good deeds looks more like a drill sergeant, right? Just do it! Stop! Get over it! Whatever it is, just do it! Sorry, I'm letting you all inside my head. Boy, the example Jesus gives couldn't be more different. He did deserve everything. He and the Father and the Spirit in their perfect union created the world. We rebelled against him. We hated him. His response wasn't revenge, though. It wasn't fierce opposition. It was humility. He swallowed it. He loved us when he was being hated. And this Is what it means to urge one another on to love and good deeds. You have done this for me and my family. I am a hard person to love. You've cared for us when we neglected you. You've been patient with me when I was arrogant and self seeking. You have loved my wife when her body failed to work like it's supposed to. You have humbled yourself. And loved us. I think for me it adds a new meaning to the idea of my responsibility to the church. A lot of times I think of my responsibility as teaching Sunday school, bringing snacks, whatever, things. And it's true. We have to do very practical and, and sometimes menial things. But what we can't forget is that all of those things are for the ultimate purpose of us collectively holding on to the hope that we profess in Jesus. And when you are tired, think of the souls depending on you. So we're leaving Nashville in a few short days. But your union and your commitment to our life to my life, to Jennifer's life, to Jacob's life, to Andrew's life, and to Eleanor's life, has been a visible mechanism that God has used to grow our faith, to change our hearts, and to make us more like Jesus. We are leaving here more like Jesus than when we came. So as we leave, do not forsake meeting together. Collectively, together, hold on to the hope of Jesus Urge one another on. Give yourselves to each other. Humble yourselves. Continue to. So that you and those around you might be encouraged in Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, you have given us the church. And your wisdom... And in your genius, you have created this institution, social organization to hold us in faith. You knew that we could not do it alone. Just as Paul said in Ephesians, your spirit is building a dwelling place with the people in this local church body. pray that as we leave this morning, our hearts would be encouraged, that we would find new strength and new joy and new hope in these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.